0: Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Hebrews. We'll be in chapter 2 this morning, verses 10 through 13 in the Bible provided for you in the pew rack just in front of you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can take that. We'll be on page 1002. So a word of thanks to my brother and fellow pastor and partner in ministry, Abe Stratton. Uh, for delivering the whole book of Hebrews last week. What a privilege it must have been to be here. I was here when he did that for us many years ago, and he has refreshed that. And that was no doubt good for his soul, but certainly good for our church. A lot of work, and uh, it was a lovely morning. I was in Louisville attending a wedding for a family friend, and we caught it on the other side. Well, shame is a profound motivator. You can tell by just what it results in when it is uh, felt. Shame can separate the closest of friends. Shame can separate a parents from children, children from parents, siblings from one another. Shame is a profound. Motivator. And in the first century, this was also true. The cross was foolishness to Greeks. It was a stumbling block for Jews. It was a shameful suggestion that salvation would require God to suffer, God to become. Man, what an absurd suggestion. What a shameful belief. A matter, I think, this matter of shame, that gives us this next passage that we're about to read. So let's read it together. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom I and the children God has given me. Well, this is God's word for us this morning. Our author's concern in writing this book can be summed up in different ways. But at the heart of his concern is a concern that his readers not drift away from Christ that they remain with him, that he would be for them an anchor for their souls, and that they would stay fast, hold fast to him, and not leave him. He exhorts them to pay much closer attention to what you've heard, and he exhorts them not to neglect the great salvation that they have received in Christ. So positively, Pay attention to what you have heard, much closer attention, and negatively do not neglect the great salvation that you have been given in Christ. And so, here in this second chapter, after having exhorted us to pay attention and not to neglect our great salvation, he is reminding us of what we have heard. And he is also filling out for us the greatness of our salvation. He doesn't merely say, don't neglect your great salvation and pay attention to what you have heard and move on. Really, the whole book is an expounding upon and an applying of all that they have heard and a filling out of the great salvation that they have and that we have received. So he's about reminding us in explaining to us that great salvation that we've received. Now, in our own passage today here, we have a number of terms to define and images to fill out. Uh, What does this mean that he brings many sons to glory? What does it mean that he's the founder of our salvation? How is he exactly made perfect? And how does he made perfect through suffering? What did he lack? Uh, What is it that That we are sanctified? What does it mean that we are called brothers? How is it that we have the same source with Christ? And what are these three quotes here at the end, which seems somewhat arbitrary? Uh, We've said this before, like many Old Testament quotes in the New Testament, you read them and wonder if it was a, a hack job to find support for something that he is saying. But we may assume, as it's inspired, that he intends to be convincing and so he is quoting the Old Testament in order to drive all of this home. So, what are those quotes doing there exactly? Because it doesn't appear obvious on the surface to us. Well, to hold all of this together, I want to draw our attention to that line there in the second half of verse 11 that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. The brotherhood of Jesus will be the point of focus this morning, a point from which we will look out at the rest of the passage. Jesus is for us the very best brother. Now, when Jesus is called a very good brother, um, that may or may not uh, call to mind great memories for you. Maybe you always wished you had a brother, it didn't have one, or, or maybe you had a brother and you wished you didn't have one, um, or at least sometimes, you know. I mean, we've got these little tape recordings at home of, of uh, I think actually I did this to my brother. I which one of us was taping actually? We were both singing against each other. Um, I was provoking him. I had a tape recorder, and he made all kinds of, oh, that's right, because this is what he did. He would he would say, um, well, when mom and dad get home, I'm going to tell him this happened, and I got him saying it, and uh, we had a fight with, I think it was a baseball bat in a broom, <laughs> and uh, literally, like, I haven't thrown the tape away, but it's been almost 30 years since I've listened to it, so we'll get it out at some time. So my, me and my brother are great friends. We've got a text thread open. We text and call one of the two uh, about Every day, and I thank God for him. But not all brother-brother relationships are as healthy or always healthy, and and sometimes they can be quite hard. Well, Jesus, he was a great brother. And he is a great brother to us. There's nothing better that he could be for us than a brother. Now it may be that we hesitate in emphasizing Jesus as our brother because brother relationships that come to mind aren't all that great, or maybe it's just it seems a little too low uh, a title or, or relationship to emphasize. And the author of Hebrews began by making the case that the Son is greater Than angels, and he is seated at the Father's right hand. All authority is his. He is enthroned. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He reveals God perfectly. Whereas the covenant mediated by angels was not all that we needed. And in that sense, it was not perfect, it couldn't save us. But Jesus, he comes, he's a mediator of a better covenant. He reveals God entirely. He is not only better, but he is above angels. He can save. All they can do is testify that salvation is coming. Well, in this passage here in Hebrews chapter 2, just before this, we've learned that Jesus was for a little while made lower than the angels. So he begins with Jesus higher than the angels, but now for a time, Jesus is lower than the angels. And it's true that now he is at the Father's right hand and exalted. But I would suggest to you that Jesus wants you to know him as brother no less than he wants you to know him as Savior and King. In fact, to be a little more precise in how all of those parts relate, Jesus wants you to know him as brother in order that you might know him as Savior and as King. It's possible for all of these to not only be true, but even emphasized in relationship to one another. Jesus is the very best brother. We're going to consider a few reasons for that this morning. The first reason is because of what he has taken on for us, because of what he has taken on for us. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Well, like any good brother, there are some things... Uh, that are alike here, and some things that are different, even with, even with identical twins. There are different kinds of twins, for twins that are not identical, and then there are twins that are identical, and let's all work hard to distinguish between the two identical twins in our church, who are children so they don't grow up, never getting called by their name or only the other name. Uh, let's work at that. That's one way to love our friends who are twins. But there are distinguishing marks And even to the parents, it's as obvious as day which one is which. Those differences, typically physical, are for the most part superficial. Well, there are no insignificant similarities between us and Christ. And neither are there any insignificant dissimilarities between us and Christ. Verse verse 11 right here. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Now, what does it mean that we have the same source with Jesus, the same origin? Does it mean that Jesus was born like us? He was born. Does it mean that he has a beginning like we have a beginning? Well, we've already established that that is not one point of connection we have with Jesus, for He is the eternal Son, the eternal radiance of the glory of God, the one through whom all things have been created. We can rule that out for sure. Well, in addition here, I'll I'll make another argument that even in this very verse, uh, Jesus does not have a beginning like us. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. He who sanctifies. Remember, if you've been here over the last year or so, we worked through the book of Leviticus, and a very point, important point of emphasis was struck in Leviticus chapter 20 in 21 and 22. See if you can hear this with me. In Leviticus chapter 10, the Lord says, I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified, and then into chapter 20, keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Chapter 21, verse 8, I, the Lord who sanctifies you, am holy. Verse 15, that he may not profane his offspring among his people, for I am the Lord who sanctifies him speaking of the priests. Verse 23, he may not profane my sanctuaries, for I am the Lord who sanctifies him. I've got about four other similar references. Actually, it's an exact line on repeat. The Lord is making plain, it is he who gets the work done of sanctifying and setting apart his priest as holy. Now, there are various ways that the that Israel was involved in that and things the priest had to do. But at the end of the day, the priest was set apart, made holy by the Lord, Yahweh, the one true and living God who is himself the sanctifier of his people and of his priest. Well, it's interesting here, "...for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source." Well, who is the he who sanctifies but Jesus who shares the same source with the hearers? This is quite a claim as to who Christ is. This right here, sitting right under the surface of these words, but plain as day, is proof positive that the New Testament authors believed that Jesus was fully God. No one is the sanctifier but the Lord alone And the Lord has come. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And as Jesus walked among us, so Yahweh was here with us. The Son distinct from the Father nevertheless, in His essence entirely and wholly, the one true God. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Which is to say... He is like us and that we have the same source, but we are not the same in every way. In the first place, we're sanctified and He's a sanctifier, but that He's a sanctifier means that He's the Lord of heaven. But there's another way in which we're different. Excuse me, before I get to that. What does it mean that we have the same source, but that we are both humans together? We share together in a perfectly uh, complete human nature. That's what that means. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. He can save us as humans because He was Himself completely and entirely human. Now, in our day, the debate on the streets will be over whether or not Jesus was fully God it is not so much debated that he was himself a man, but in, in this day, in fact, you can feel the challenge under the letters of the New Testament. It was often the case that to believe Jesus was fully God, was the fully human, was the big controversial claim. For it was obvious that he was a miracle worker and from somewhere else. No, but we believe that he he is both. So he is like us. He is our brother in the sense that we have the same source. We share the same nature as humans. And yet he was not like us in every way. And that's one reason why he's such a good brother to us. And can be as we will see. For he was made perfect through suffering. You saw that in verse 10. It was appropriate. It was fitting that he should be made the founder of. That he should make the founder of their salvation, our salvation, perfect through suffering. Now we've clarified what it means and doesn't mean that, that Jesus and we share the same source. What does it mean that he was made perfect? Now, does this mean that he was made morally perfect? That he was born with problems, uh, ethical problems, a propensity to lie, in busyness with sin and that he was perfected with time and emerged at the cross, uh, one who was no longer committing sin. How do we explain this? Is this an admission that Jesus wasn't perfect in the sense that he was not ethically honest, did not have integrity? Well, that is not the case. For we do not have a high priest, the author will say several chapters from now, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted, in every respect has been tempted like we are, he's like us, yet he's a point of difference without sin. Now that in every way tempted, in every respect has been tempted as we are, I think gets at something that this verse is getting at. It's just another way of saying it. He's planting seeds and saying some things and expanding on them as the book unfolds. And so right here, what does it mean that the Father should make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering? Well, we can hear that through the lens of this verse that He sympathizes with us in our weakness. In every respect, He was tempted as we are, yet without sin. It does not have to do with his moral integrity or perfection. It has to do with his qualification as a priest. See, there was something he had to do when he was here. He became the incarnate son and came down and took on humanity. And then there was a whole life to live. And there was suffering to endure. And why all of that except that it had to be done? He had to become qualified by the time he was crucified... To actually take our place. It is not that he became more human. It is that he suffered under every temptation we suffer. Yet without sin. And in that respect. It's not that he was made less a sinner. Or purified from his own sin. It is that he was proven a qualified priest for us. And through our series in Leviticus. We made our way in Leviticus chapter 7 and 8 through the ordination of the priests. You remember hearing about this. This is the law of the burnt offering, of the grain offering, of the sin offering, of the guilt offering, and of the ordination offering in the peace offering. A ram was offered for ordination. There's an appointment, a qualification, a special criteria that were met. The priests had to be made qualified in order to serve as a representative for the people. They were purified for their own sin. The place was purified where they would do their work of representing us. And so they were made perfect in that respect. And this language of being made perfect in Hebrews, has as its background Leviticus and the qualification of the priests who were made perfect, purified, even through these special offerings, in order to represent us. So it doesn't mean that he was ethically impure or sinful. No, there's no contradiction here. It was perfectly fitting that he should, the Father, should make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering It was through his temptations and his suffering as a man that he was qualified to suffer for us as a propitiation for our sins. And it's in that respect that he was made perfect. He identified with our humanity, yet without sin. He identified with our humanity, yet without sin. And apart from a Savior who identifies entirely with our humanity, we don't have a Savior. And apart from a Savior that identifies entirely with our humanity, but not being corrupted by sin, we have no hope either. Jesus, the Son, the Son of God, comes all the way to us in the incarnation and His life but stops short of taking on our corrupt nature. So if you were trapped, as we have said, all the way in the middle of the sea, to use the nautical imagery, you would need a Savior that can get all the way to you without getting stuck with you. And Jesus is a Savior who gets all the way to you, all the way to your humanity, and so he can sympathize and understand all that you're going through. And yet he did not sin in the midst of those temptations as you and I do, which is why he can take us all the way home with him. He meets us where we are, and in more senses than one, he does not leave us where we are. He's a very good brother, the very best of brothers, because he took on humanity for us without taking on our sin. there's a second reason, because He doesn't leave us where we are, that He is the very best of brothers. And it's because of where He takes us. Because of where He takes us. Last week, we prayed for a church uh, on Sanibel Island, Sanibel Community Church. And we prayed for another church, Fort Meyer, uh, Faith Bible Church. I was talking with uh, a friend who pastors the second church there this last week. I didn't even realize how close these churches were. They're about 15 minutes away. Uh, on a really, really good traffic day, 50 minutes uh, most of the time. But they're very close. In fact, both churches were working to, uh, on, on plans to plant in Fort Myer, and it looks like those plans may come together in a unified effort to plant at Fort Myer. And the Sanibel pastor may be the planting pastor in Fort Myer before he heads back in due course to Sanibel. Lord's in all of it. He's working in all of it and we will find out. But in watching the news unfold from the hurricane, you remember there were some that were rescued from the island because the bridge was broken. There was no getting back to land. Helicopters coming in, finding people and airlifting them, airlifting them out to safety. Well, in this case, a rescue effort involved the taking of stranded, trapped people in danger, uh, from one place to another. Well, is that what the author in mind has here? We know that he's about taking us somewhere. It was fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering, the founder of their salvation. Another word would be Trailblazer of their salvation. Reminds me of when we moved into our home and I was in kindergarten in Illinois and mom, must have been the first week, blazed a trail in and through the woods so we could get out there and play and get back home without stickers all over us. Midwestern woods. Blazing a trail that we could then follow. When you drive across the country and you, you're on a flat road, but you're going through hills and and mountains well there was plenty of dynamite and explosives to pull that off and even before that lewis and clark others who would travel across the country and find their way across the rockies even blazing a trail that others follow behind someone has to go first or no one goes at all and you need a qualified trailblazer in order to get from here to there Safely. Well, Jesus is a trailblazer. Another word would be pioneer, a pioneer. Well, where is he leading us exactly? Where is he taking us? It's obvious enough that he's taking us somewhere. He's a trailblazer, a pioneer. It's less obvious where he's taking us. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, here it is, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. There's a certain there's a certain destination, uh, glory, in bringing many sons to glory. And the trailblazer who will get us there has to be made perfect through suffering. Well, this is saying something to us about the obstacle in the way of us and and glory, but what is this in bringing many sons to glory? Now you might immediately fill in the blank there and say, "Ah, by glory he means heaven." And this is not disconnected. What I'm going to suggest from heaven, but I'd ask you to turn just a little bit earlier in chapter two to a quote of Psalm eight we looked at two weeks ago. You remember, last two weeks ago we said that that the son became incarnate so that Jesus could represent us in his true and full humanity in order to fulfill God's purpose for humanity. Today, we look at a text that shows how it is that Jesus brings us personally into that purpose for humanity. Well, let's remind ourselves as to that purpose. Verse 5 Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It's been testified somewhere, Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet." In that passage there, the psalmist is meditating on the creation story at the very beginning of the Bible, and he is interpreting the creation of humanity, humankind, in the image of God to rule over the creation. He's interpreting that as being given glory, having been crowned with glory and honor. It's regal, it's royal imagery. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing out of his control. But at present, we don't see everything in subjection to him. Humanity is very much in subjection to to hurricanes and our own sin. But we see him who for a little while, Christ who was made lower than the angels, him, Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. You see, now back to our passage. You see, Jesus took on humanity... And did so in a way that was without sin. And so the glory of Jesus is not just a merely regal, divine, heavenly glory, but a human glory. He is the human as humans should be. And in this passage, we are shown how he brings us into that glory as a human. In bringing many sons to glory. Out of what? Into what? Into our true purpose as humans, as God's image bearers to rule over creation. And yes, there is a future new creational fulfillment of this. But even as background in bringing many sons to glory is a phrase you would find modified slightly in our Old Testament that takes us to the story of the Exodus when God brought out his son Israel into the land of promise when he brought them out and when he brought them into the place of his presence so now he brings many sons into glory and so that old testament story of the exodus whereby the the nation of israel was brought through the waters and into the land to serve and to worship god is a little template, a little parable for the greater thing that he would do in your life to bring you out of slavery to sin and to death and the fear of death and out of bondage by the devil into your glory as a human being, into all that he purposed and purposes for you. A beautiful, beautiful truth And here's what this means, a point we make from time to time. It is not the case that to become a Christian is to give up part of yourself, is to become a little less of yourself, that God's sanctifying holy commandments constrict you from being the true you that you are. The message to all of us from the world today, which is so pervasive you almost don't notice it, is that the true you is the you inside of you, and to be truly you, and to be truly honest, to be truly good, to be all that you can and should be, is to express outwardly all that you think and feel inwardly. Well, that is just not the case. In fact, it is sin and the fear of death and our temptations that we give ourselves to that dehumanize us, that make us lower and less than humans, we might even say. We never lose our dignity as God's image bearers. But it's actually the sin inside of us that handcuffs us and puts us in bondage and makes us like walking Robots, zombies at our worst. One looking just like the next as we follow the course of this world. The prince of the power of the air. Children of wrath headed to death. The living dead, scripture calls us. No, that is not That is not who you were made to be. No, to be the very best you you can be and the true self you were made to be is not to look inside yourself, but to look outside yourself at one who can save you and sanctify you and fix you. It is not structures out there which make humans the problem that we are. It is our sin in our own hearts that make us the problems that we are. And we need an outside helper to help us with our inside deep problem. So look to Christ for freedom from yourself in that sense, and you will find your true self and true life in him. For he is the one through whom the Father is bringing many sons to glory, and he is the one who is made perfect through his suffering so that he can For he held up under all of the temptations that you and I have to give in to those inner desires. And yet he did not submit himself as a slave to sin. There was no sin found in him. He identified with us yet without sin. He identified with us as a human... In order to bring us into our glory as God's freed human sons and daughters. And so this transfer on this page is not just place to place. It is in the first place into our purpose as humans. To know And reflect the glory of our God as those made in his image. And it's not a mere purpose apart from a personal connection with the God who does this. In fact, it's deeply personal. Which brings us to our third reason that Jesus is a very good, even best brother to us. In the first place, we said because of what he took on for us. And then where he takes us. And now because of how he talks To us. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise, and again I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children God has given to me. You might be distracted by two things at this point that may make us just to keep reading. And as you're reading your own Bible day to day, Uh, It's okay to not understand something and to keep reading. Don't feel like you need to stop until everything is so clear. Keep reading and then eventually you'll come to church and we'll get to that passage wherever it is in the Bible. But You might be distracted reading this and that you're not sure what these quotes mean. And if you're honest, you're not sure they mean anything. Um, They, as I said, appear to be Like what you did when you wrote a paper on a bad day after, I pray, you confessed it. You just grabbed some citations and shoved them into the document to meet a word count or a footnote count. Well, that is not, as we've said, what the authors of Scripture do here. So we always start with the assumption that they know better than we do. And we acknowledge that we are thousands of years removed from this text and even more removed from the quotations. So we ask for God's help, and we give ourselves to study. But I'll just notice, I will point out two things here to you in verses 11 through 13. First, who is speaking? Who is speaking? He says, that is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, quote, Jesus, I will tell of your name to my brothers, In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So he's calling them brothers as he's praising God. Look at who he's speaking to. This is meant for us to hear, so he's giving praise to God. But we can say he's speaking to us with these words. He's speaking to his brothers. This is Jesus speaking. Now, this is an interesting way to quote the Old Testament. He doesn't say, it is written... Later in this, he'll say, the Holy Spirit says, when he quotes the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit says to us, so this author will quote the Old Testament as speaking to you today, interpreted rightly, of course, in light of Christ. But this is interesting right here, because he's actually putting the Old Testament words on the lips of Jesus as having spoken to to us. Well, one way to think of Old Testament quotes would be like hyperlinks. If you write an email and you're being quick, maybe you just paste the link. If you want to add another minute or a moment to your, your email, depending on who you're writing to and the nature of the relationship, you will highlight a word or two and you will add the link and they can see when it turns blue or when there's an underline there that if they want to follow up on that word you just said, they can click and, and they can get more. They can get to the thing you're talking about. Well, Old Testament quotes are kind of like that. Um, the author is not grabbing a line in isolation from the whole context in which it originally appeared. Old Testament quotes are kind of like hyperlinks. And so you can keep reading, and if you don't quite know what's going on, you can double-click and get to the, to the link. And that's a little bit of what we'll do right now here toward the end of the sermon. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. And I discern a reason from each of these quotes. Turn with me to Psalm 22. Psalms are right in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 22, if you've been around church much, will be familiar. Maybe even if you haven't been around church much... each of the four writers of the gospel accounts in the New Testament quote from or draw from the imagery in this chapter in order to describe what's happening on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus takes those words on his own lips. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Verse 3, you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. And our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. Verse 6, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. They say, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Verse 12, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me. Verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it's melted within my breast. And my strength is dried up and my tongue sticks to to my jaws. Verse 17, I can count all my bones, and they stare and gloat over me, and they divide my garments among them. For my clothing they, they cast lots. And he cries out, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid and deliver me from the sword, the mouth of the lion. Mark, when he tells the story of the crucifixion says those who passed by derided Christ wagging their heads and saying aha you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days they mock him or Matthew quotes those around him he trusts in God let him deliver him now if he desires him for he said I'm the son of God they even quote Psalm 22 and John after this Jesus knowing that all was now finished. Said to fulfill the scripture, which would be this passage: "I thirst." And Luke, and Jesus said, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." And they they cast lots for his garments. So each of the authors sees in what's happening to the Son of God, Jesus crucified, a fulfillment of Psalm twenty-two which were David's real words on his real lips concerning his real experience. And yet his experience was a pattern of his greater son to come who would suffer for his people in a greater way. But that's not what the author of Hebrews is quoting. The author of Hebrews quotes the next passage. We may assume that everything we've just read is, if you will, the The furniture, as it's been said, of the author's mind as now, he quotes verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Now that doesn't sound like Psalm 22, does it? It's because David is counting on a deliverance, an answer to his prayer from God. And Jesus is counting on a deliverance. Now, he would actually see death and be turned over to it, and yet rescued through the resurrection. And he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. He actually actually turns to the whole earth to rejoice in God. And that is through David's suffering, there is a kind of deliverance God provides that, that then... That then echoes in praise throughout the whole earth. And in fact, it's David's greater son, Jesus, who dies and suffers in a greater way, yet, according to this description, this very template, who, when delivered through his resurrection, calls all his brothers to praise God, and we call the whole earth to praise God. There is even a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and God's promises that all the families of the earth be blessed through him, that Jesus rises from the grave and in so doing as if takes these words on his lips to call all of us, but he uses the word my brothers. David identified himself with his people and subjects. He was king with the people of Israel as a brother. And Jesus has come all the way to us as a human in order to identify with, uh, with us as brother. And so he looks to us in solidarity with us as if on our level to call all of his brothers and sisters into praise. Assume sisters in that, of course. That is Psalm 22 on the lips of Jesus, and he is calling us brothers into God's praise. There's another verse here that is quoted, and it's from Isaiah chapter 7, chapter 8. Uh, Isaiah is just to the right, a few books. It's very long, also hard to miss. Turn to Isaiah chapter 8. So in the first place, he's not ashamed to identify with us, Because of his victory and because he shares his victory with us. He's also not ashamed to call us brothers because he is confident that his trust in his father has not been misplaced. In the book of Isaiah here, Isaiah is preaching to the people of God who are uh, finding a point of compromise to try to appease Assyria. And they're turning from their God in doing so. Isaiah is exasperated. He is being rejected by his people. He's a rejected prophet speaking for God. In verse 16, bind up the testimonies, seal the teaching among my disciples. He is going to take his message and stick it in a bottle and give it to his disciples so that they might see that he is proven right Down the road, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. I will trust in the Lord, Isaiah says, in the face of all kinds of rejection and opposition. And Jesus himself, a greater prophet, was rejected by his people when he came, and yet he entrusted himself fully to the Lord. And because he is now raised from the dead, he is vindicated and his trust is shown not to be misplaced. And so, our trust in God and his word and in a crucified Christ is not a misplaced trust. He is not ashamed to identify with us because he is victorious and he shares his victory with us as brothers and calls us into his Father's praise, but also because. He has been shown that his trust was not misplaced. For he trusted his father all the way to death and then he was raised from the dead and vindicated. And there are times when you trust the Lord in your hard marriage, in your hard role at work. In the face of the news of cancer, in a broken family relationship of any kind. And you could know, because the Father raised the Son from the dead, that you too will be vindicated, and sin will be done right. Right will be right or wrong of every sin, and all sin will be judged. And you'll be rewarded in the last day. And so we say, with the Lord Jesus, with the prophet Isaiah, I wait for the Lord Though it appears that he's hiding his face from me. Yes, our place is our trust is not misplaced. And Jesus can call us brothers without shame. Because he knows that his trust in his father was not misplaced. It wasn't just a big mistake that he was here. And the cross wasn't a big mistake. Does it ever look like, could there ever be something that appeared more like a mistake than the crucifixion of the son of God? Oh, but he trusted the will of his father in the garden. Well, there's a final quote here. It's the very next verse in, in Isaiah, verse 18. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Here's the point here. I and the children you have given me. Jesus is taking that on his lips, which is to say, he considers us to be brothers given to him by the Father. We are a gift from the Father to Jesus, But even more than that, the congregation, his brothers and sisters gathered, the children of God gathered, are signs and wonders to the world that Jesus really is raised from the dead. We are proof positive, not only if we were to have seen the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, would we know that everything he said was right and his trust was not misplaced and the cross was, not a, was a dark moment but not the end. But you can look at the church where, where men and women turned from darkness to light and being sanctified in the hardest of their circumstances, turning from sin as Jesus turned from temptation, is proof positive that the Son is at the Father's right hand and that the whole book is true. That's you and me. And that's the encouragement that the author of Hebrews means to give to you and me this morning. He is, Jesus is our pioneer and our trailblazer, and that language is important for him because there were meaningful obstacles to overcome. And Psalm 22 outlined those obstacles for us. He thirsted, and he was crucified, and mocked, and his garments were sold, and he died for you and for me. That was the obstacle. The obstacle was the flaming sword on the way back to Eden. The obstacle was pictured with the cherubim on the curtains on the way into the Holy of Holies. There's no way in. Nadab and Abihu were killed. But for a qualified priest, one made perfect, one who could represent you perfectly as a human, yet one who could sanctify you because he was God. And the Lord Jesus is all of this for you and me. The very best brother. And friends, consider this. In your family, you have a brother or a sister because you are a son or a daughter. That happens immediately when you're born or adopted. But there is a a logical flow to those relationships and a priority. Well, consider that in Christianity it is the opposite. You are a child of God... If and because you are a brother to Jesus, he makes you God's son or daughter because he, in the first place, has come all the way to you and become a human, even become your brother. And he is a very good brother indeed. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we give you praise for the Son whom you sent to be our Savior, brother. And we give you thanks that He intends for us to relate with Him, yes, as King and as nothing less than King, but also and entirely and as much as brother. So we pray to you because of and through our elder brother, and we give you thanks for the great brother that He is to us entirely like us in every way we need him to be, yet without sin, a brother who sympathizes with us and who calls us into, even sweeps us into your praise. And a brother who sat down his disciples, a, an initial meeting of the new people of God to give them a new meal by which they would know and remember that they are family and look forward to eating with him in the kingdom. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.